Sometimes heroes become monsters and monsters become legends. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Tuesday, August 8th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, the legend of the snake-haired Medusa and an introduction to her family. We'll talk with the author of a new novel that explores what it means to have a choice, what it means to have a sister. We get to know a scientist seeking to understand the role of the humble microbe in saving the planet from a sea of plastic. Plus, we walk through a farmer's market with our food correspondent, Chris Madsen, and then we sit down to supper with author J. Ryan Straddle for one more summer read. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. South Dakota is desperate for more teachers. The number of open teaching positions is starting to raise some nerves because of a lack of applicants. SDPB's C.J. Keene checks in. The calendar says August, and it definitely feels like summer. Kids are causing chaos at the downtown Rapid City Y, and every corner of town is catering to bikers ready for the rally. But each passing day also brings the school year that much closer. You might think this is a moment when educators at the Rapid City Area School District can take a breath before things get going, but Superintendent Nicole Swigart can't help but keep one eye on a ticking clock. It's funny how 24 hours can really change the the feeling about, oh my goodness, this is the month school starts. It's August and Rapid City Area Schools has 40 certified teaching positions open. Um, that in and of itself is very concerning. That's 25 openings for classroom teachers and 15 special education positions. Across the state, the need appears similar, most notably for elementary and special education positions. All that comes before mentioning hourly employees like paraprofessionals and bus driver openings, which are also in high demand. Swigart says students lose opportunities when there aren't enough educators in the pool. We can't just magically make certified teachers appear or people want to be paraprofessionals. Um, so we have to make the best decisions with the resources we have and Thankfully, um, we have great people who will step up and do that for us. There are many factors at play that lead to teacher shortages, including pay. Compared to other nearby states, South Dakota comes in last place for regional teacher salaries. Swigart says while more money is an obvious incentive, she isn't convinced pay is the only factor. People are leaving the profession because they don't feel valued and respected. I think people are leaving the profession because other opportunities that maybe weren't there in the past are now available. Um, I would say working from home, for instance. Would more money be nice? And it might be the answer in some cases, but South Dakota would have a long ways to go before we would reach a point where the dollars would be the determining factor. Rapid City is by no means alone as South Dakota schools large and small battle open teaching positions. Aberdeen Superintendent Becky Guffin says they're cutting class choices, not only electives, but core education options. That can speak to the math as an example. We no longer have a calculus class. We no longer have a statistics class because we couldn't find a teacher. We just scaled it back to teaching what's required for the South Dakota graduation requirements. So our kids have lost opportunities because we can't find staff. 
to the South and Chamberlain, the challenge that comes from open positions is familiar. Superintendent Justin Zeitz says going into his fifth year on the job, they've been hiring for as long as he can remember. That led him to some tough questions. Prior to this year, we've always entered the school year with at least two openings. And you just, you can't seem to break through that. And, and so you sit there and you go, why aren't people applying at Chamberlain? You know, what's, what's the drawback? What's going on? But this year, a breakthrough. We are fully staffed. And so we're, we're ready to go. Um, my, my principals do a great job of finding the right people and then saying, here's what we have to offer in Chamberlain. You know, if you're somebody who loves the outdoors, you can hunt and fish all year round in this community. Zeitz agrees that providing educators with a sense of value is vital. He also stresses that feeling of community is essential in an era of heightened scrutiny on teachers and librarians. And Zeitz says every day is a chance to go to bat for someone. Case in point, if they have a teacher saying, hey, there's this weird noise in my classroom, can you have somebody come and look at it in the next few days? They'll go find it and fix it. You know, it's those little things that everybody notices. We've really been pushing to get done so that people really feel like, hey, this district cares more about just me teaching the kids. Zeitz cited a raise for teachers going into the school year as further boosting morale in the district. Some say the implications of a teacher shortage can have tangible effects on the quality of education. Sandra Waltman is the government relations director with the State Educators Association. She says increased student-teacher ratios and heavier workloads are just part of the deal for teachers these days. Waltman says sometimes teachers are assigned to classrooms falling outside of their specialty. That just adds to more stress on, on you, you know, your teachers and principals. Um, and that it, it's kind of a, a vicious circle when you, when you can't address the, the shortage of, ed, of educators. It's teachers. Um, it's the support staff. It's, you know, you know principals you more people decide to retire or leave the profession. Waltman says considering the reality of the situation, it's time to follow up on the prior school investment efforts like 2015's Blue Ribbon Task Force, the result of which boosted South Dakota's teacher pay. We think that the state you know, really needs to step it up probably in the next year or so to look at ways that we can incentivize uh, teachers to go into the profession and to keep and retain those veteran teachers. And that, you know, requires investing in schools to make sure they have the resources to offer competitive salaries. Teacher pay in South Dakota currently ranks 47th nationwide, ahead of only West Virginia and Mississippi. I'm SDPB's CJ Keen in Rapid City. You can find and share this story online, sdpb.org news. And stay tuned. This September, we launch a new segment here on In the Moment where the teachers have their say. We'll take a deeper look at education, classroom management, and the pressures and opportunities of a profession. We'll kick that off after Labor Day. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, how could we reduce the amount of plastic used in agriculture? The answer may lie in corn stalks. But in order to get from the humble stalk to a more environmentally friendly bioplastic, we're going to need to get micro 
microbial. We're going to need to get microbial. Dr. Danny V. Govel is a research scientist at South Dakota Mines. She is studying how a microbe could turn corn stalks into bioplastics, and she'll talk about her genetically engineered microbes at an upcoming STEAM Cafe discussion. But before that, she joins me from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Dr. Tanvi Govel, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here today. Tell me a little bit about what drew you into this area of research. Um, so, you know, I have my master's done in microbiology and then a PhD in bio, uh, chemical and biological engineering. And I have been always fascinated by the way the microbes are available to provide us solutions to the problems that exist in the environment. Will it be solutions to find the microbes that can, you know, help the farmers or help us use the agri-waste or other waste material that exists in the environment, or it can deal with using the microbes available in the nature to f produce stuff for us that are biodegradable in nature or stuff that can replace plastics in the nature. And same way, I have always been interested in finding the microbes, either wild type or genetically engineered them in a way that they can help us improve the productivity, help us improve the titles, help us improve the quality of the material. We have always been interested in, you know, in short, finding solutions to the environmental problems in a way which we call bioremediation. So finding a microbe or creating one through CRISPR technology and gene editing. Tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about how that works. Okay. So... Typically, there are multiple ways you can use to engineer the microbes. When we say engineering, you can either uh, use them to delete, let's say, a fragment of the genome. You can use genetic tools to add a fragment of the genome that never exists in them in the wild microbes, which we say. You can use them, you know, even to insert a gene, delete a gene. You can use them to insert or delete a whole operon system, which we call like, you know, whole pathway. You can use genetic tools to divert the pathways inside the microbes itself. So there are multiple tools available to you. CRISPR is one of them. Homologous recombination is second one, which is very helpful for starting something in, to, in terms of gene editing. Random mutagenesis is next level then uh, adaptive laboratory evolution is another concept that has that is really holding the grounds so, so yeah tell me a little bit about this microbe that basically eats corn stalks so um, during my PhD with South Dakota School of Mines so we found in from some agri fields of South Dakota we found a microbe that's a thermophile it grows at 60 to 70 degrees Celsius this microbe has an inbuilt capacity to break the corn stovers, which is the waste material from the corn plants, and it does not need any extra additionally added enzymes or chemical treatments or physical treatments. You just feed that microbe the agri waste that you have in your hand. They eat it up, they degrade it, they hydrolyze it, they release the inbuilt sugars from those corn stalks by themselves. So it's like they are churning away the lignin, cellulose, hemicellulose, the recalcitrant part that represents the plants and make their own sugars out of them. Hmm. And during that procedure, we found that these microbes are also producing bioplastics. 
Okay, so let's go there because what yeah. do we want to use the bioplastic for? So the bioplastics that we are producing right now, it's a completely microbially synthesized. The microbes in the nature produce them and according to the literatures or our own investigation, it's 100% biodegradable. Mm. So as of now, we are trying to prepare mulch films out of these uh, bioplastic that we're making and bioplastic we are working with is polyhydroxyalkanoid. So you can use it for multiple applications. The m application we are exploring right now in our laboratory in School of Mines is how can we prepare mulch films out of it. So uh, that can be very useful for the farmers to improve the crop productivity. And while doing so, we are also innovating on the methods of how can we functionalize or change the nature of these biopolymers itself. Tune the nature of these biopolymers itself so that while they degrade, they also release signaling molecules in the soil, which improves nitrogen for, uh, which improves the, how to say, like the microbial population that helps the plants to fix the nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, sorry, yeah. uh, potassium. So those sort of activities. So make soil more healthy by what Correct. you're putting on it. Now, how important Correct. is it to be able to create this close to home from a cost-saving standpoint? And mm -hmm. from an environmental and uh, from an environmental impact point of view, versus you know shipping it in from overseas. Mm -hmm. So maybe if I talk about the costing, so as such in the market today there are m more options available for what you call a biodegradable mulch films. Okay. They are synthesized using cellulose. They are synthesized using starch, but somehow those components are still have some chemical metal attached to them. They still require extraction from the plants or processing in a way that they are still using chemicals. Our process of producing those mulch films is completely based on cornstalks. So it's, as of now, it's, I don't have the exact numbers with me. Sure. But it's very easy for us to prepare those polymers from just the cornstalk. You just need the microbe. You just need a small reactor system, which is very cheap cheaply available and we can also build one ourselves in a lab wow. and from the environmental part environmental aspects of part so it's way easier and way important for us to start using something that biodegrades in the nature so that there is no trace of microplastics remaining in the soil yeah so assume that you are using mulchum that's made of completely fossil derived plastics when they degrade, first thing, I, some, according to literature and surveys, they don't degrade, first thing. Even if they degrade, they leave behind a trace of smaller particles, which we call microplastics. Those microplastics can affect your food. They can affect your um, cattle health. Mm -hmm. They can, if they sweep into the water lines, they can affect the whole wastewater treatment facilities. So microplastics is a problem. Yeah. All right, we're going to leave it here, but uh, this research is happening right here in South Dakota, and you can learn more about it at the free monthly STEAM Cafe Talk, August 15th. It's 6 p.m. local time at the Hay Camp Brewery. That's in downtown Rapid City. Um, Dr. Tanvi Govel will talk about genetically engineered microbes for the industries of tomorrow. What a delight to hear about this work. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me today.
Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, perhaps no other character from ancient Greek stories has been more mesmerizing than Medusa. She is depicted as beautiful or as grotesque. She's represented as evil, yet her severed head is wielded to fight off evil. Well, a new novel explores the mythology of Medusa in fresh and sometimes startling ways. Medusa's sisters is deeply researched and vividly imagined, and it asks complicated questions about choice, mortality, vengeance, and forgiveness. And it adds to a canon of Greek mythology from much-needed fresh perspectives. You may never look at your sister the same way again, or the stars, for that matter. Lauren J. A. Bear is the author of Medusa's Sisters. She's also a teaching fellow for the Holocaust Center for Humanity, and she is with us on the phone now. Lauren, welcome. Thanks for being here. As a public radio super fan, I am <laughs> thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I spent the entire day with this book and could not put it down. So I am a super fan of yours now as well. So let's have some fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's incredible to hear. First of all, this this no, it's a novel. It's fiction. And it's so incredibly researched because you went back to all this source material. Tell us a little bit about that and why that mattered to you versus just just, you know, letting your imagination run wild. Uh, I did. And it was like putting a puzzle together, but all the pieces came from different sets. So <laughs> nothing really fit in the way I wanted to, which was great because I got to use a lot of my imagination. And um, I got to think of plausible adventures that these Gorgon girls could have gone on in within the timelines of the mythological chronology. Um, what some people don't know is Perseus is one of the earliest Greek heroes. He is an ancestor of Hercules. So where the Gorgon story occurs is very much at the beginning of the Greek stories. It's long before there's a Parthenon in Athens, um, before the Golden Age. So that was kind of interesting to explore. And you begin with the very beginning of these sisters. And when they're born, I don't think it's a spoiler alert to say that they have lovely hair. They are not uh, filled with snake heads. <laughs> so this is part of, of the journey. Tell me a little bit about their birth and their coming into the world and some of those themes that you wanted to explore there. Exactly. You know, the story came to me. I was a middle school humanities teacher and <laughs> I'm not sure. It's probably similar in South Dakota, but in Washington State where I was teaching, sixth grade curriculum covers ancient world civilizations. So I always kind of have these stories in the back of my head. And I was on maternity leave um, with my daughter. She's my middle child. And you moms out there or parents just <laughs> in general know what it's like at three in the morning when you've been up with your baby and you're so sleep deprived. And sometimes the wildest questions come into your head, right? And obviously this, this must have been some kind of like remnant from, from when I had left teaching to be home with my daughter. But I thought Medusa was a Gorgon, but who are the other Gorgons? <laughs> I've studied this material for years. I have no idea who they are. So I Googled them over my little baby's head on my phone, <laughs> and I read a Wikipedia article, which, I mean, how 
how professional do I sound that I started with Wikipedia? <laughs> and there's this quote from a um, 19th century classical scholar who says that the other Gorgons don't matter. Mm. They're mere appendages. Only Medusa matters. And that was, I took it like a gut punch. I'm holding my baby girl. You know, I am a woman. It was really hard to hear. And I became obsessed with trying to find out more about them, how they became Gorgons with Medusa, what their life was like, especially when I figured out that they were immortal and Medusa was mortal and what the dynamics must have been like for a trio that's so unbalanced in that sense. Yeah. I just, I became obsessed with them. Wow. Here's one of the comparisons I've been making and tell me if I'm all wet here. <laughs> because I've been saying, okay, if you went to see the Barbie movie, you need to read Medusa's Sisters because here's why. There's a, a complexity and even an impossibility of the female experience. You're looking at an iconic character and there are deep thoughts about who gets to tell your story. Am I wrong? I mean, all that's I... in there, right? No, you nailed it. I completely agree with that. And, you know, I think agency and voice is so important, especially in retellings. And women in antiquity are especially um, silenced because already their lives were really constricted and controlled um, by the men in charge. Mm -hmm. And then the records of those lives were also controlled by men. So they really kind of disappear into really flat stereotypes. And I think that's why there's such a hunger for these retellings or these counter narratives, because real women are super complicated. You know, we're existential Barbie and <laughs> and we're not just the faithful wife or the seductress or the raging sorceress. You know, it's not authentic. And, and we want... We want complicated female characters, real ones. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about as you explored, you know, the older sister and the middle sister. I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce their names right, so I'll let you do that. But um, what, what did they reveal to you about their characters? But maybe even more importantly, how they saw Medusa. We don't, we don't get inside Medusa's head from the first person, but we see her sisters seeing her in a way that reveals so much about her character. What was, what was interesting to you about what they revealed to you as you were writing them? Totally, and they see her differently. They yeah. have different relationships with her. So um, you kind of have to piece Medusa apart from, yeah, from her sister's perspective. You know, one of the first decisions I made when I started to write the book was a character decision and it was purely physical. I knew that Steno and Uriley, that's how you say their names. Okay. They're really tricky. I didn't write those names. Those actually do come <laughs> from the mytho mythological records. Yeah. Um, but I knew they had to look different than the kind of iconic image of Medusa we all have, which is this beautiful, but raging face with all the green snakes, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that image they had to look different. And there's such a variety of snakes. I ended up researching snakes for a while. <laughs> and once I gave them different colored snakes, different types of snakes, a different look, their personalities kind of emerged from there. And, you know, not to give spoilers, but I think the snakes actually kind of symbolize um, their own interiority yeah. as the book, you know, 
progresses. Yeah. Forgiveness is one of the themes um, you have said, and I think it's worth asking you, like, forgiveness among monsters? We look at uh, the Gorgons as monstrous, and yet forgiveness, vengeance, um, all this is um, held up in a really complex way. Tell me about that. It is complicated, and, you know, I think they're, they sin against each other, right, in their sisterhood. And just from my observations of family, sometimes we give forgiveness whether or not it's explicitly asked for. Mm. Um, and that's a part of loving someone and also maybe loving yourself. So I definitely, you know, I definitely played with that a lot because of the two sisters, Deno is more of the the stereotype of the older sister, right? She's very protective of the other two, especially Medusa. And then there's Riley, who's a little more prickly, a little more complicated. Um, so they interpret vengeance and forgiveness very differently as well. One thing I think is so fascinating about Medusa is we associate her with rage and violence and um, and death. But I can't find any evidence of Medusa killing anybody in the mythological record. I found none. The only time Medusa is used to in violence is when she's disembodied by a man who uses her head as a weapon. So she has no control over that whatsoever. So I wanted to create a Medusa that was nothing like what people might be expecting. Yeah. Go back and uh, we'll tweet that out. <laughs> there is no record of her committing violent acts uh, on her own, but only when her disembodied head is used to do it and she has no control. Like, that's mind-blowing right there. Um, tell me Isn't about... Isn't that wild, yeah, that's though? Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps. Tell me a little bit about the, the poet who, uh, the musician, who is uh, a female voice but cannot be the voice of history. So she has to have uh, her husband or her partner go into the world and deliver her music. Uh, that was enough. That was a beautiful, um, a beautiful line where she talked about how much music meant to her and how she was compelled to create it. Tell me a little bit about where that thought came. Thank you. For you. Yeah. I, I had, I knew that for Steno, for the main character, there was going to be this separation between what she thinks she wants and what she actually needs. And what Steno thinks she wants is to protect Medusa, but what Steno really needs is a voice and, and individuality. And it's the gap between those two that I think make her really interesting in her own journey. And when they go to Athens, both of the sisters seek out other women for help in in being a type of human woman. Uriley goes to a brothel, right, mm -hmm. and meets this mistress. But Steno really bonds with these musicians they're staying with. And I, I was imagining just how it would have felt to be such a talent, to be a woman with a song, with a story, with a skill set, um, but not being able to share it because of the rules of society and just how frustrating, frustrating that might've been. And I also wanted to 
include some positive male characters too, because this was never, you know, I didn't want this to be like a total male bashing book. And Erastus, who's like Gia's husband, yeah. is that guy. He is a very supportive, loving partner who, who does his best in the way he can to support his artist wife. Mm. Um, I was thinking as I prepared for this about the great Ursula Le Guin and the fantasy that she put into the world that has, I I haven't read her catalog deeply, but the things I've read have had deep impact and she means something to you too. Tell me about why it's important to put a novel into our lives right now. (laughs) There's so much, Oh, real stuff happening. And, and the role of fantasy in helping us see ourselves more realistically. I love that you brought up Ursula Le Guin. <laughs> she is just my all-time favorite. Honestly, I get like teary even thinking about yeah. her because I love her so much. And I think that she more than anyone has articulated for the power of genre fiction and yeah. fantasy and how fantasy is the oldest form of literature Yet for so long, it was kind of consigned to like, she calls it like nursery literature, like, oh, that's for kids. Yeah. You know, make-believe stories are for kids. And she talks about what a disservice that is, because there's something about fantasy that allows us to explore real-world situations with such greater creativity and with such greater limits or like, you know, expanded limits yeah. that I think, I think it brings, I think it brings things to life. The, the, the future has an ancient heart, right? And we're bringing these old stories back in an, in a new way that feels so real, so connected. And is such a communion yeah. um, with the people who've come before us. Lauren, you are remarkable. And Medusa's sister's <laughs> is the book. Wink, wink. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being here. Talk to you again, I hope. I hope so, too. I'll come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you, South Dakota. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Welcome to tomato season, an essential part of South Dakota summer. Chris Madsen is a food writer. He's also a former state lawmaker and an attorney. We asked him to help us navigate a South Dakota farmer's market that draws vendors and shoppers from all over the region. His advice, make a plan, go early, know your growers, leave your dog at home. More on that later. You can find Chris Madsen's food writing on our website, sdpb.org news. But first... It's Saturday morning. The trucks have been unloaded. The dew is still on the produce. We begin at the entrance to the Falls Park Farmer's Market in Sioux Falls. Ideally, it it starts before you leave the house because I find it pays off to have a plan when you come down here. There's a lot of good things. I generally know what's in season, so I've got some idea what I'm looking for. Hopefully I have a plan so it keeps things out of the compost pile. I've got some ideas here this morning, and it's a matter of doing a little recon. Uh, we'll check the pricing. We'll see what's best this morning, and we'll see what we can pick up. 
do you have your favorite vendors your favorite growers I, I kind of do you know like everything else I've got I've got the people that I'm uh, uh, quietly and passively mad at and then I've got my favorites <laughs> here and there why are you mad at someone uh, there's a guy over here who can't make change and I'm still kind of upset about that all right I see a sign before we enter the market yes we're in South Dakota so we've got to have democracy all the time so we've got the petition signers on the one side and of course to balance things out we've got a group of angry people telling you not to sign the people the thing across the uh, sidewalk so so you start the day with a jolt of uh, electoral politics can't get away from it at the farmers market now either and no dogs allowed no dogs and actually I don't even see any yet there is a no dog sign it says uh, please no dogs or pets in the market area you know due to health concerns and whatnot but uh, apparently that's a very vague directive as to what exactly the market area is is it where you're buying stuff is it where you're eating stuff is it where you're walking around we'll run into some dogs I'm sure all right so over here on the left or uh, the right is a uh, a group of people from Orange, uh, not Orange City, they have an orange tent, which is appropriate for Northwest Iowa, of course. They sell breakfast sandwiches. They're reportedly some of the best. I usually skip those when I'm down here, trying to travel light, lean, and mean. Unfortunately, these folks used to sell a few meat products. They had the best pork chops on the planet. Uh, very good heritage, dirt-raised hogs, and that makes for a good chop. I don't know where they are. The people are there, the chops are not. We've got to find the chops one of these days. Here we are. Here's some of my favorite folks. These are the the Carper sweet corn people from up near uh, Rutland and Ramona and Oldham. These folks sell a ton of sweet corn. Uh, a couple weeks ago I was down here and you almost had to fight to get some out of the beds of the pickups. They had two full pickup beds absolutely full of sweet corn with another one or two in the weight and I, I heard from somebody who was down in the market later that morning that by about 11:30, everybody down here is completely wiped out of sweet corn so uh, it's the it's the must-have apparently we're gonna get a half dozen because I still have a half dozen from last week you see it's getting to be tomato season there are tubs full of tomatoes. This is what everybody's apparently after. I personally, tomato is the flavor of summer. There's nothing better than a, than a fresh tomato, ideally right out of the garden. These are as close as you get. I don't garden that well, so I buy tomatoes from these folks. But they've got tons of them now. Early in the season, everybody wants them, and they're priced roughly the same as raw cocaine. But you can, now, now they're getting to the point where they're going to start going down price. You'll be able to buy them by the pound. I like to get about 10 pounds when I'm going to make some salsa. And uh, we probably won't do that today, but that's a good deal. Ooh, dragon, dragon tongue beans. I think we'll get a bag of those. What is that? Well, these are interesting. They're kind of a long bean. They're fat. And they're, they're called dragon's tongue because they look like a tongue, kind of. And uh, a really tasty bean. You can uh, boil these and saute them or make a nice salad with those. Those will be great. Some really amazing squash. There's some stuff I've not seen before. They look like anacondas sleeping on top of the, of the cucumbers over there. 
one neat phenomenon you get when you uh, when you come down to this is whenever you get a lot of people in one place, everybody thinks it's a line to get somewhere, and it's probably not. But people instinctively line up, and that makes it a little bit of a challenge from time to time. Hmm. The onions are looking really good this morning. The beets are looking good. I think we're going to go in for some eggplant. I'm awesome. Let's have a couple of these nice eggplant, too. I like a nice tight skin. I like them a little small. I don't like them too big. Um, it's something you want to use fairly quickly. Uh, let's throw in a zucchini, too, please. No, that ought to do it. $14. Awesome. All right, we're coming around the ring here, and here's Peace and Harmony Corner, Lori. This is where this is where peace and harmony reign because we've got here we've got the skipping stone pizza people that make breakfast pizzas very popular item here at the farmers market but to the left of them maybe literally and figuratively is is brogia bowl all plant based and then to the left of them not figuratively but literally is the uh, Robinson Ranch people from Newcastle Nebraska they sell beef off their ranch from down that's down across the river from Vermilion in that area. Really good stuff. Got a little in the freezer. We're gonna skip that today. Yeah, there's a dog. Dog spotting. We've got a dog. Uh, here's another one of my favorites, but this is definitely a plan ahead deal. So Dakota Mushrooms and Microgreens sells the best fungus among us. It's uh they've got tons of varieties of mushrooms that they grow they've got microgreens too if you want to play you know cute chef and really make your your plates all pretty with tiny tiny cilantro or something but the the mushrooms are second to none they're really gorgeous you see these in the in the stores once in a while but they've got a really good selection and for about twenty dollars you could have a a box of mushrooms the size of your head and but you're going to want to know what you're going to do with those they're neat to buy but like all things down here, it's best to have a little plan. This sounds interesting. I think Mexican food is some of the best cuisine there is. And here's these folks selling some kind of cochinita pibil, which is a roast pig, usually wrapped in, in banana leaves and roasted with a bunch of nice pepper smeared all over it. And that's really phenomenal stuff. Not, not quite breakfast fare, but awfully good stuff. So what will you make with what you bought today? Well, we actually have a little bit of a plan. I'll make I'll make probably some ratatouille. I bought a, I bought a zucchini. I bought some eggplant. And we'll cut those up and kind of stew it together with some tomatoes. I've got some tomatoes at home, and uh, we'll make that all together. And that's a nice dish for the summer. Very tasty. Goes with everything. Goes with everything. That's the taste of summer. Taste of south of France. It's just a great place to come connect. I mean, it's it's not a money-saving exercise, but if you want the peak of the season and if you want to get to the people who are closest to you with the food that's closest to you, this is a great way to do it. You can find Chris Madsen's food writing for SDPB on our website. That's sdpb.org news. That's also where I'll post the pictures of Saturday morning's walk through the Falls Park Farmer's Market in all its colorful bounty.
We have gathered the groceries. Now let's sit down to supper. Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club is the latest novel from author J. Ryan Straddle. Straddle's books have become main courses for Midwestern book clubs. He is scheduled to appear at the South Dakota Festival of Books this September in Deadwood, and he'll join me on the main stage for a live broadcast of In the Moment. But first, let's listen back to our conversation from earlier this year when he joined us via phone to talk about Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club. So we know each other, but we don't know each other that well. But yet, because I've read your books, I feel like I know you so well. Do you get that a lot from readers that just feel like you're already part of their family? Oh, oh fortunately, because I'm, I'm writing for them, and I'm writing about my family. And so if they see their family, my family, oh, that's, I don't know. Not, uh, nothing could be more to it. nothing could mean more to me. It, it just uh, it's the best compliment. Yeah, I feel like part of that is because of the the most of it is because of your mastery of craft and and the way you write. Some of it is the topics that you write about. Uh, one of those being food as a as an ongoing theme. It feels like we've had dinner together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I and, and and I hope we will sometime. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I want all my readers to feel that way, to feel like they're walking into the Lakeside Supper Club along with me, and uh, like the diners at the Lakeside Supper Club leave happier than yeah. they they were coming in. Yeah. Um, speaking of family, the dedication of this book uh, reads for Auden, if he so chooses. There's a whole lot to unpack there now that I've read the book, but you are writing. Uh, difficult stories about characters experiencing um, challenges with fertility and loss while you are embracing being a new father. Tell me a little bit about the intersection of your personal life and this book. Well, it's it's not so much an intersection as an overlay. Yeah, it's it it has been my experience. My partner Brooke and I both struggled with fertility for many years before eventually conceiving a child versus IVF and. That was a very lonely process, and I, we both felt quite isolated and unsure where to turn and where to find community. So I wrote this book and wrote about that as a means of telling people they're not alone. <laughs> and and it, was, uh, it, it would have meant a lot to me to read about characters going through the same thing I was going through at the time. And I certainly haven't seen a lot of men write about it, mm-hmm. in nonfiction even. So uh, other than uh, Clint Smith, uh, the wonderful poet, so I, I really wanted to write about that and, and work that into the lives of my characters as well and and make um, our hard-won process towards having our son Auden something that other uh, other people uh, could relate to as well to hopefully feel a little less alone in their journey. So you pour all that love and uncertainty and melancholy on the page. And was that was there a cost to you for that? By that I mean, did you have to step away and just, you know, take the kid out in a stroller? <laughs> or was that or was that the place that you poured that emotion and it made you better? Like, I, I'm curious as a novelist, um, oh, how, was... how did that impact you to be in that space every day writing? Oh, wow. Well, I poured it in there. But fortunately, because of the scope of the novel, it wasn't the only focus. Right. When I sat down to write the book, I actually started with my character, Mariel who is, uh, at the beginning of the book, leaving to pick up her mother at church. Uh, she doesn't make it to church that morning. She hits a deer, and other circumstances interrupt her. But 
Florence, her mother, decides that she's going to keep waiting until Mariel picks her up. And <laughs> passive-aggressively waits three months in that church. <laughs> and at, at the time I sat down and wrote those chapters, I really needed a laugh. I had been through the yeah. ringer, and I wanted to write a funny story about people I knew being themselves, not always being their best self, but expressing their personality in the way they knew how, and, yeah, making kind of a, a, a comic story out of it. So that's also part of it. I don't think I've laughed or cried more while writing a book yeah. than this one. This book, I think it's my funniest and saddest book, and I, I couldn't just let it be only sad or only funny because this big book also takes place over almost 100 years, four generations, multi-generational Midwestern family epic. So there's loss, but there's a lot of laughs too. Yeah, I belly laughed as that story built um, because it is so, you know, it tur- it's a thing. It turns into a thing that the mother oh, yeah. is just, I'm not going to leave because my daughter said she was going to pick me up <laughs> and she didn't. Yeah. And, I, you know, I won't reveal because it will just take the fun out of it. Um, of all the different ways these characters' lives interact passive-aggressively in this Midwestern town. But there are also, as you said, the you're not afraid to show female characters, famously, as full, fully developed, sometimes not very likable, um, not always being their best selves, but, some, but always being 100% real in, in your books. And that's what these characters are. They are 100% real. And they go to work every day. <laughs> open the restaurant they do. They do. yeah 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 and, and did the women uh, uh who raised me yeah i mean i i i i write these uh characters the way i do because i don't know any one-dimensional right. women in minnesota <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah you know and and my mom is the reason i write i write to keep her alive and she's in these characters there's so much of her in mariel so much of her life experience and her likes and dislikes and i i i, I want to honor that and she didn't live to write a book herself and yeah. and badly wanted to. It was her dream in life, and I'm living that dream. So mm. I feel like I want to write the book she would have written. I want to carry on her legacy and do the best I can to honor her because I'm here because of her, you know, in so many ways. I'm, the, I'm, I'm a writer because of her. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, I, I, I also felt I'm not seeing the women I grew up around in books that often, right. or not nearly enough. For me, Lorna Landvik writes about them sometimes, and yeah. uh, some other great Minnesota writers. But I, I want more. Yeah, I, <laughs> I want to go to yeah. a section where I see the women I grew up with. Right. Like yeah, I, to- <laughs> I totally agree. I'm working on a. You'll appreciate this. It sounds like a digression, but you will get it. I'm working on a needlepoint canvas right now that my grandmother was working on, and she spilled oh. tea on it, and oh, so she stopped geez. working on it because she spilled tea, and so I'm tearing out the stitches and replacing them. And a few people have suggested, well, you should leave it there because it's a part of your grandmother. And I'm like, you don't know my grandmother. (laughs) There is no way (laughs) that she would have left. And like the way I honor her is by delicately taking out stitch by stitch and then replacing it because that is what she would have done. That is what the women in my family, we didn't, we didn't finish it with the tea stain on it. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Right. 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 I right. want to. So I want to read that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And so much about our lives as children is trying to interpret what our parents met. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in this book too. You know, all the way down to my character Julia, who's the fourth generation, and is forced to try to figure out for herself what her mom meant for her. Yeah. You know, which is what I'm doing. You know, that 
you know. Uh, we're both living in the shadow of, of, of a dead parent's expectations, and that's a real thing, too. You know, just like you're doing with uh, your grandmother. You're trying to discern, like, I know what her intent was, and I'll yeah. do my best to enact that. We will get to sit down with Jay Ryan Straddle at the South Dakota Festival of Books in Deadwood this year on September 22nd. That is our show for today, and we hope that it served you. On tomorrow's In the Moment, what does it mean to have no label in politics? We'll talk with Seth Tupper about a political party, what it means for independent unity. We'll also talk about the legacy of the word should as it relates to Governor Nome and the pandemic. That is our Dakota Political Junkies conversation for tomorrow. Plus, we have beat poet P.W. Covington. He'll stop by the studio to talk about poetry, America, and life on the road from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.